I'm Jorge Salazar, reporting from the Texas Advanced Computing Center, part of the University of Texas at Austin. The SE14 Supercomputing Conference takes place this year in the city of New Orleans, November 16th through 21st. Scientists, engineers, educators, students, IT professionals, and industry meet at SE14 to share the latest in high-performance computing, networking, storage, and analysis. Larry Smarr is an invited speaker at SE14. He'll share his experience studying the ecology of microbes inside his body using the XSEED cluster Gordon of the San Diego Supercomputer Center. Dr. Smarr is the director of the California Institute for Telecommunications and Information Technology, and he holds the Harry E. Gruber Professorship in Computer Science and Engineering at the Jacobs School of Engineering at the University of California in San Diego. Larry Smarr spent his early career as an astrophysicist computing the dynamics of black holes. In the mid-1980s, he led the proposal to the National Science Foundation that created the first national supercomputing center specifically for university researchers, the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His work there led to the creation of Mosaic, the world's first widely used graphical web browser. In 2014, Smarr received the Golden Goose Award that honors researchers whose federally funded research might not have seemed to have much practical application at the time, but resulted in major benefits to society. Here's Larry Smarr. The theme of the SC14 conference is HPC Matters. Now, why does high-performance computing matter to you, and also why should it matter to anyone else? Well, as someone who has spent, I guess, four decades using supercomputers, it clearly mattered to me. My entire career was built on using supercomputers uh, to do discovery science, in a wide variety of fields. But the thing that I'm most excited about now is the big shift that's going on in supercomputing from an era which was largely solving partial differential equations or other sorts of equations to big data supercomputing. And I think this is an evolutionary change. It's been coming for a long time but I think it will just become more and more dominating that way. On the other hand, the real way to understand data is to also have a set of equations that you can solve that represent the phenomena you're getting the data about. Simplest way to think about that is the way that we do use supercomputers to do weather forecasts is we gather a lot of data, sparse data, about the state of the atmosphere then we use the equations that govern the Earth's atmosphere to do what's called data assimilation and essentially interpolate between all the data points in which we don't have measurements with the laws of physics, not with just mathematical statistics. So I think that image of creating highly detailed virtual versions of the world through combining equations for how the world works with massive amounts of data measured about that world is really uh, the path forward. Yeah, I was hoping you could tell us about some of the biggest changes 
that you've seen in how supercomputing is done today compared to the mid-1980s when you helped charter the first supercomputing centers in the U.S.? Well, if you go back to 1985 when the NSF supercomputer centers were set up, uh, we typically had four or maybe eight processors. Those processors are quite a bit slower than today's smartphone processors. Uh, and so the growth to, if you think today about um, petascale computers, you're talking about easily tens of thousands of processors, maybe 100,000 processors. Um, and so this massive parallelism has been a huge change since we first started. On the other hand, you've also seen us go from hand-tooled processors. The original Cray processors were exquisite feats of engineering that Seymour Cray and his colleagues developed, um, totally different than anything normal people ever used. Today, the same processors that are, are in our supercomputers are what are in our desktop machines or laptops. Um, and so there's much more of a, of a vast fabric that's developing software uh, for those processors. And therefore, it's much less of an isolated field um, in using supercomputing than it used to be from the software point of view. Congratulations on receiving the 2014 Golden Goose Award. Thank you very much. The Golden Goose honors scientists whose federally funded research might not have seen obviously practical at the time, but turned out to have big payoffs to society. Could you tell us about your pivot moment, I guess, from studying astrophysics and, and black holes um, to computer science? It's hard for people today to remember that in the 1970s, if you wanted to get access to a supercomputer in the United States, you needed to get a top-secret nuclear weapons clearance and go and live between the cracks as a guest investigator at one of the National Department of Energy uh, weapons labs, like Livermore or Los Alamos. There also were a few using weather, and one or two universities had them, but there was no uh, internet as we know it today. There was ARPANET that a few computer scientists in some of the top universities used. But but this idea that you can just, from your desktop or your even your phone, go directly to any computer in the world, that was um, science fiction fantasy in the 70s. And so <clears throat> as I was working I, at Livermore uh, and at Los Alamos, and then later in the first available, unclassified, unveil, uh, totally available to researchers, computer in, in Europe in the Max Planck Institute for Physics and Astrophysics in Garching by Munich, I sort of began to wonder why did the United States have this policy that prevented our very best and brightest in the universities from using our fastest computers. And by that, we're talking the VAX computer, which most university people had, was 400 times slower than the Cray. So think about that. Imagine the United States has a policy to keep its best investigators, its best innovators, 
on computers that are 400 times slower than what it has in its nuclear weapons labs. And at some point, just the absurdity of this struck me, and I started writing up sort of an underground blog about it. <laughs> and I started going field to field from chemistry to uh, climate to biology uh, and so forth and finding investigators and asking them what could they do with 400 times the computing power. And it was clear they could break up on whole new scientific fields. And so I basically decided to um, do the only thing I knew how to do, which is write proposals to the National Science Foundation. And I wrote a proposal in 1983 to set up a national supercomputer center. Uh, the unfortunate thing is because there was no program at NSF to fund this sort of thing. And so that set in motion a several year thing. A year later, Sid Karen came in with his um, proposal um, from uh, Journal Atomics. Uh, there was a blue ribbon panel inside NSF. And so this big snowball basically developed. And by 1985, there was a national program and we could, we could do it. So I, I really realized that how powerful the supercomputers were in my very narrow area of general relativistic uh, astrophysics. But I could see that it could make just similar revolutionary changes in our knowledge uh, about nature if we could make it available to everyone on a peer review basis. And so that's really what launched me from a little corner of research space to supporting uh, research across all applications in the United States. Tell us about the latest focus looking inside your own body. How have you used um, the XSEED cluster Gordon of the San Diego Supercomputer Center to study your own gut microbiota? Uh, well, this is a classic data-driven use of supercomputers. I became very interested in this new frontier. It's sort of like the dark matter and dark energy of cosmology, changing everything about cosmology, which I had lived through. But it turns out as human beings, we only have 10% of our cells that are human and 90% are actually microbes from thousands of different species. So we're this very dynamic ecology, and yet nobody in medicine thinks that way, and certainly most of us don't think that way. And it was one of these things, just like I was used to in, in astronomy, is that until a new instrument was developed, you just didn't know about stuff until the first X-ray satellite went up above the atmosphere, the Uhuru satellite uh, in the early 70s. We didn't know that there were all these incredibly luminous X-ray sources. And those, of course, later became many of them associated with black holes. And so it was like we were blind to, to what was really up there, you know, until this instrument happened. Well, it's the same thing with genome sequencing. Until we could do genome sequencing, we couldn't differentiate all the species of microbes. You can't do it any other way. You just have to read the barcode of life effectively and determine which species they belong to. Now, we are used in supercomputing to, say, Moore's Law, maybe a factor of a thousand uh, in the speed up every 10 years. And yet what we've seen with genome sequencing is it's almost uh, gone at the square of Moore's law. So we've seen at least 100,000-fold uh, decrease in cost of sequencing in the last 15 years. And so this means, finally, 
it's reached a point where where we can afford to do the massive amount of sequencing it takes to uh, understand who's there. Remember, each of these bugs is like 5 million DNA bases long, and you've got thousands of them that you're looking at. So it's a classic big data problem, and I was fortunate enough to have uh, colleagues to collaborate with. Craig Venter's institute, uh, the J. Craig Venter Institute, was able to do the sequencing, very deep sequencing, and Wyzong Lee, who is a researcher here at UC San Diego, had developed very elaborate software systems. But what we missed was where are we going to do all the computing? And in particular, because this is so much data, we needed really uh, big RAM and um, flash memory and this sort of thing. And so uh, fortunately, the NSF had funded the first uh, big data supercomputer in the national program for San Diego Supercomputer Center. And Mike Norman, who had worked with me actually for essentially 35 years uh, as director, realized this was a new frontier. And so he gave me a grant of time on the Gordon supercomputer. Well, we ran 180,000 core hours on Gordon to go from the genome sequencing uh, 200 million uh, what are called Illumina, the next generation sequencer, short reads. Each of those is 100 bases, so um, that's like 20 billion uh, DNA bases of my stool. <laughs> that's where the bugs are. Uh, they're about a billion microbes per gram of your stool, it turns out. Um, and so then to go take that 200 million short reads and turn that into the relative abundance over, say, 2,500 species of microbes, um, and then to go down further and actually call out the genes uh, that are in each of the microbes, that's what took so much um, computer time. And um, it was um, then, then we had to use large-scale scientific visualization to understand the patterns effectively uh, that we were using there. So uh, it was it's, it was kind of one of these things where, really, I don't suppose five years ago I could have done this. Um, uh, but it was it it shows you that you have to look at not just the changes in the supercomputing architecture, as well as the speed, but then also what are the changes in the scientific instruments that are generating enough data to justify the use of those very large computers. And what did you find? Well. Uh, it turns out that in disease states, um, you, at least in the ones I've looked at, which are some of the autoimmune diseases, there is a massive disruption of the ecology. So think of looking at a, a oak forest, right? Uh, that's an ecology. And, you know, it's mostly oak trees, but then there's maples and ashes and uh, other species that are in there, but it's smaller and smaller numbers. And now there's a forest fire and no longer any oak trees. And a year later, there's this huge bloom of all kinds of stuff from the forest floor that was there all the time, but it was just shaded out essentially by the oak trees. Well, that's what happens inside of you when there are these disease states, particularly ones that involve the immune system, that are which is very tightly coupled to the spectrum of species that are in your microbiome ecology. So, 
For instance, in your large intestine, which most of your microbes live in, there are 100 trillion microbes. Now, all your human cells put together are 10 trillion. So, so this is not a small piece of your body. This is 90% of the cells in your body. And by the way, if you count it in terms of the genes on your DNA, 99% of the genes are in the microbes' DNA, and 1% are in the human. And yet all of this is outside of medicine. So we're going to see a revolution in understanding health and disease in humans as a result of this. And what I found is that, for instance, in a healthy person, and I looked across 255 healthy people, um, uh, you have about 90% of your bacteria are in two large biological divisions called phyla, um, the largest, like all vertebrates are a subphyla, for instance. But if you look in things like inflammatory bowel disease, say Crohn's disease, um, that the most dominant, say three quarters of your microbes, has been reduced 50-fold. And in its place are all these microbes that can cause trouble uh, if they're in large quantities. And, and without that keystone species being there, then they do, in fact, bloom. And you can just see it visually by comparing the genome sequencing from people in the disease state with people that are healthy. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? Yeah. I, what are the most exciting trends I see in, in computing these days, um, in particular in, in you know, fundamental changes? And I, the thing that I'm most excited about is the rise of non-von Neumann architectures, which we've been dominated by for 50 more years. And so the recent announcement by IBM of the... Uh, of the True North processor, over 5 billion components integrated into their chip, and yet it's totally non-von Neumann. It's based on the brain and the overlapping synapses. Uh, it's, I don't know, at least a 1,000 times more energy efficient. It doesn't do the same things that, say, a large-scale Intel processor does, a von Neumann architecture. But just think of what it means in terms of all the kinds of things that are more like pattern recognition uh, that are in our mobile world going to be incredibly important. And IBM is planning to build supercomputers out of these. So I think this is a once in 50 year change. And it's something that uh, we're hoping to build a laboratory here at uh, my institute, CalIT2, at uh, UC San Diego uh, and UC Irvine to, to really start to look at applications on these kind of biologically inspired architectures. That's amazing. Yeah, we're going to keep our eye out for that. Thanks again. Um, this is my final question. What's the most important thing you want people to know about supercomputers and the future of healthcare? Well, you know, when we talk about supercomputers, we tend still to think of a big machine in a room that costs $100 million dollars. Uh, or more. But if you actually think of the old definition of supercomputer, which is the fastest, largest computer at any given time, um, many of us think that the development of the planetary computer, the cloud computing behind Google, Amazon, 
um, Microsoft Azure and so forth, is really becoming the new supercomputer. And when you consider that there are over a billion cell phones shipped a year, and each of those processors is more powerful than a Cray-2, and there are a billion of them, and those are connected to the backplane of the planetary computer, which we can't really say, but you certainly have millions, if not tens of millions, of processors and the planetary computer connected to mobile devices, a billion of Cray-2s. Think about that architecture. That's a supercomputer. That's a planetary-scale supercomputer that's constantly increasing its power and its ability to learn. And that's where all of the data about our bodies is going. They're going into these clouds. They're going to Fitbit's clouds or MyFitnessPal's clouds. Or, and as we get more uh, capabilities of reading out the internals of our body, our blood values for our, our glucose and um, our heart-related uh, chemicals, um, and all that is going into the cloud, and all our medical records will be in the cloud. I mean, the ability to understand it, the whole scale of the human race and yet pinpoint you as an individual, that's what that planetary computer connected to all those mobile devices, connected to all those body sensors is going to make possible. Imagine a Watson uh, in that environment and a kind of deep learning that is very quickly being invested in the very best researchers and you know, from Stanford and Carnegie Mellon and, and, and so forth are going into places like Google. Ray Kurzweil, a former uh, keynote speaker at supercomputing, is now a director of engineering at Google. Really? They've given him the keys to the planetary computer? The guy that's talking about the singularity is near? That's for real. So I think we need to open our vision a little bit in the supercomputing community to what is going on and and embrace that as part of our community. I think that's the future. You've been listening to Larry Smarr of the University of California in San Diego. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar.